I'm Dr. Ben Rall. Do you know where the most amazing doctor lives? You may be surprised to learn that it's actually right inside of you. Yet, today's healthcare model is built on a foundation that the greatest doctor instead comes in the form of pills, potions, lotions, even surgery. So listen in, because what if the majority of what you have been told about health and healing is not only wrong, but actually harmful to you? One thing is for sure, when you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. Hello everybody and welcome to today's episode of Designed to Heal, a fascinating episode. I'm going to put uh, whatever reputation I have on the line that this is going to be one of your favorite episodes. When you share this one with your friends and your family, I think it's going to say, here's what the text will say. It'll say, you've got to listen to this. And then you'll have that little emoji that has like the mind blowing thing there. Uh, I think that's what you're going to do when you listen to our guest today. Um, Our guest uh, in many ways needs no introduction. If you are been part of this freedom fighting movement, if you've been part of uh, what's gone on in our nation the last couple of several years now, and people standing up for medical freedom, people standing up for freedom of choice, natural immunity, those types of things, then you probably uh, know our guest today. If not, you are in for a treat. We have with us today uh, Dr. Aaron uh, Cariotti, if I said his name right. We were joking a little bit earlier, but um, Doc, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Ben. Would you, you mind for those that aren't um, from you know haven't aren't familiar with your story? Will you give us the kind of Reader's Digest version, a little bit of your background, mm-hmm. of course, your MD and your world there, and then what happened? And then I want I got to dive into your book, the New Abnormal. It's fascinating. So uh, take it take it from there. So I'm a physician, as you mentioned. My specialty is psychiatry, and up until December of last year, I spent my entire career um, and my residency training. So almost 20 years at the University of California, Irvine, where I was a professor in school of medicine and about half my time was spent uh, teaching in the department of psychiatry. And the other half of my time was spent as the director of the medical ethics program at UCI, chaired the ethics committee there, the ethics committee at the California department of state hospitals. And I plan to retire there as, as an academic physician, mm-hmm. teaching, doing my research and so forth. But um, when the university announced uh, that it was, it was considering a vaccine mandate, I had some serious concerns as an ethicist uh, about that. And I published a piece last year in the Wall Street Journal arguing that university vaccine mandates were unethical. They violated the principle of free and informed consent, the sort of centerpiece of 20th century medical ethics that was articulated in the Nuremberg Code following World War II and was instantiated in state and federal law. And I I thought it was not justified to uh, throw that principle overboard, particularly for a vaccine that we knew from the outset uh, did not and could not stop infection and transmission of the COVID virus. So I, I made my case publicly and I tried to get a conversation going at the university. Um, as it happens, I was on a committee at the UC office of the president that basically oversaw all of the UC branch campuses, not just the one where, where I was. And we were involved in de- devising and, and drafting all of the COVID related mm-hmm. policies during the pandemic, except for the vaccine mandate policy, which sort of came down from on high and our, our committee was not consulted, which I found very okay. strange and peculiar because this was clearly of all the, 
all the pandemic policies, this was going to be the <laughs> yeah. most controversial. That'd be the, one, the, that'd be the one to talk guy. about there, yeah. Right? So so the Wall Street Journal piece was an effort to get a conversation going. That didn't work. Uh, and then when the university uh, finalized their, their vaccine mandate, I started seeing people being harmed by the policy. Uh, I, the university was declining arbitrarily many religious exemptions. People with conscience-based objections, students were reaching out to me saying, I'm not a religious person. I don't want to submit an insincere mm-hmm. exemption, but I have these reasons to be concerned about the vaccine from a moral or medical point of view. It became de facto impossible in California to get an appropriate medical exemption because the California Medical Board was threatening the license of any physician who wrote mm-hmm. an exemption. And so people were being steamrolled. This was a this was a big problem from my perspective. And I was projecting ahead to the required ethics course that I teach all the first and second year medical students in January. And I was trying to imagine, you know, talking about the principle of informed consent, which I do in the very, you know, the second lecture of the course. Uh, I was trying to imagine talking to them about, you know, moral integrity and moral courage, doing the right thing under pressure, even though, you know, you're a medical student, you're at the bottom of the hospital hierarchy. If you see something happening that's going to harm a patient, you you have the duty to to step out and say something, right? Uh, to try now, to doc, you that you have just a couple of quick before you continue the story. I just want to make sure everybody is is tracking. So, up till this point, um, a stellar career, never had an issue. These were things you've been teaching and been you know promoted to teach, and everybody says this is great. I mean, what you're talking about up to this point right here was the way things had had always been, <clears throat> and what triggered right. what triggered you not triggered you, but words in your mouth, but um, so initially, now we could certainly have a, a, a con- discussion about medical concerns regarding the, the the COVID jab, but you really were first initially kind of what set your radar off was the ethics of this. So I, I say this exactly. for our listeners, because yeah. listen, I have grave concerns about the safety of the of the COVID jab, but just on ethics, that thing could make you live to a million years old and we still couldn't, we st- still shouldn't mandated. I think this is part of the reason I wanted to have you on because it's a really important part of the discussion is the ethical implication, the medical ethics related to this, because you may listen to this and you may have, I don't have any problems with the COVID jab. Okay. But, but for the people that do have concerns, we, they need, there's a certain things we've always agreed on for the, you know, at least for the last, you know, hundred years or something like that, that we've agreed on in, in healthcare and uh, the practice of medicine and the Hippocratic oath in certain laws, even like you mentioned the Nuremberg code where this this shouldn't happen. So when you start to see exactly. that happening, you're going as a medical ethicist, happen to be a physician as well, but you're going, whoa, 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 we need, we need to be talking about this. And I want people to understand you were at a very high level. I mean, you're, you, you were sitting there, you know, like you said, creating these protocols and I'm not even saying whether you agree with them or not. I'm just meaning you were, you were where a lot of us, you know, don't have the opportunity to be. So did I say everything accurately there? No, that's exactly okay. right. Um, I was creating protocols and policies like even our, our ventilator triage policy at the university. And then the state of California consulted me to help fix some problems with their ventilator triage policy. So yeah, I was involved in high level policy work on COVID related policies from the outset of the pandemic. And you're exactly right. My initial concerns were ethical. Um, I, I now have more concerns about safety right. and efficacy of these vaccines than I did at that time, but you're, you're exactly right. On, on the basis of the ethical issues alone, that's why I published the piece in the Wall Street Journal and then ultimately took, took the next step, which 
basically amounted to, you know, trying to imagine teaching these ethical principles to the students when I had been in the position that I was in and I had seen something being rolled out that I believed was unethical and harmful. If I had not stood up and tried to do something, Mm -hmm. then how could I, you know, how could I credibly encourage medical students to do that when they were under pressure? So long story short, I made the decision to challenge the vaccine university's vaccine mandate in federal court on constitutional grounds on behalf of people like me who had natural immunity after recovering uh, from COVID. I I made that argument because I thought it was a legal argument that we could win in the courts. Um, And before the judge made a ruling, the university acted very swiftly, Mm. uh, first by twice rejecting my medical exemption, and then by placing me on what they called investigatory leave, and a month later on unpaid suspension, and a month after that, in December of last year, the university fired me for alleged noncompliance with the with the policy that I was challenging legally. And again, Doc, you were you up until this point. I, I again, t- not to belabor this, you were a a, a very well. Uh, I don't know what the word is, respected, yeah. you know, liked part of the team, yeah. you know, uh, you've been a really good asset to them. I mean, you right. Kept promoted you, whatever, like this isn't mm-hmm. not the black sheep. Nobody like try, let, let's use this as a reason to get rid of Dr. Aaron. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I've won the excellence in teaching award mm-hmm. three times from the medical students. I w- had been invited by the deans a couple of years before to give the keynote mm-hmm. uh, address to all the students and families at their annual white coat. Mm. ceremony at the beginning of the academic year. Uh, so I was, <laughs> I was, I thought well-regarded at yeah. the university. Now I was a trusted advisor to the, to the Dean. And again, at the office of the president um, of the, the whole UC system trusted me um, actually made me the spokesperson <laughs> yeah. for the ventilator triage policy. If there was public questions about that, because that was an ethically sensitive policy. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was a very dizzying and surreal experience to have the university turn on me so swiftly uh, when I publicly challenged this policy. And that, you know, that made some headlines. Yeah. The, you know, university fires <laughs> their ethics director for challenging the ethics <laughs> yeah, of one of their COVID policies made uh, made for an interesting headline. Yeah. But um but, I, yeah. you know, by the, the book was an attempt to understand not only what happened to me and so many people like me during the pandemic, but where these mis- misguided policies came from. And more importantly, um, where this whole regime is going next, yeah, because like even though vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, lockdowns, many of these policies have been temporarily rolled mm-hmm. back and we're not laboring under them any longer. That whole infrastructure is still in place, just awaiting the next real or imagined declared right. public health crisis. Which I'm so uh, to advance. I'm, I'm so uh, I'm ready to dive in. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm an Orlando guy, and so uh, when I, the way I really first uh, got familiar with you, Doc, was when you and um, Jonathan Isaac were kind of, you yeah. know, I don't know mm-hmm. how you to say, you know, kind of doing some work together or talking, you know, sharing stories together because he was in a similar ish position, although in a different, you know, sport, you know, he's one of our Orlando magic basketball all-stars here. And so, um, you know, I thought, I just remember watching an interview that the two of you have had done, right. Uh, doing your best to articulate that. So, um, as Orlando wins, Orlando wins, if that's how you say it, thank you for, uh, for, for, for helping in that discussion. And of course, living in Florida, we've had a little different experience than you've had in California. Um, however, we, it, it, 
you know, that argument is not going to last forever, right? You know, I, I struggle with this. Well, you know, hey, I live in Florida. Hey, I live in Texas. Um, that's, you know, great for a, a season maybe, but that would be, in my opinion, that would be a serious false sense of security, right? To think. I think that's right. And yeah. so you, you wrote this book called The New Abnormal. And I, I was talking to you a little bit earlier. I've, I've read the book and I've, I, I feel like it's one of those that I, I, I just keep telling people, you know, I take a picture of it and I send it to my friends and I said, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. Thank you. And it's just one of those. And I let me know, I was teasing. You. I said did, I, offline, I said, did you write this whole thing yourself? Because it's so well written and it's so well researched. And if you're into this, you know, topic at all, which every concerned citizen should be, um, you need to, the thought exercises in this book and the thought patterns in this book really help you understand, I think, the issues that are at hand. I mean, hey, we can get on our soapbox about uh, the side effects of the jab, which are real and, and, and certain aspects of it. But to your point, Doc, this brings it all together to, I think, see what's at stake. And of course, as an evidence-based guy, um, you're using the best, you know, nothing's perfect, but you're pulling together, you know, through your work and your doctorate and your, you know, ethics lens you're bringing quality content. So will you talk us through this book a little bit, kind of, you know, why, why the name? And then I just want to walk through it and, and talk about stuff. Yeah. So th thank you for that. Um, those kind remarks about the book. Really appreciate that. So as you said, the book is called The New Abnormal, and the subtitle is The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. So people often ask me, okay, well, what do you mean? What is this term, biomedical security state? Bit of a mouthful. And what it is, is the, the, the sort of unholy welding together of three different things that we saw fully manifest during the pandemic. The first is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And I can talk more a little later about what I mean by a militarized public health apparatus. But that's been a process about 20 years in the making behind the scenes that really sort of publicly manifested over the last three years. The second element of the biomedical security state is the use of digital technologies of surveillance and control to try to manage entire populations. So, you know, your mobile phone, and think about this is a novel technology that first iPhone was released in 2007 that hasn't been with us that long. So this is the first pandemic of the digital age. And these technologies we now know were used not only for things like, you know, vaccine passports, showing a QR code to get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant or a public event, get back into your own country of origin. You know, and this QR code demonstrated that you had done what the public health authorities had told you to do, including injecting a novel gene therapy based uh, vaccine that you may or may not have wanted. You know, if you would have told people in 2017, 2018, that, you know, in a couple of years, we're going to be doing this. <laughs> they would have looked at you as though you were completely insane. They would have rightly said, no, Americans would never accept that kind of regime of surveillance and control. But that's precisely what happened after, you know, the better part of a year of uh, prolonged lockdowns, school closures, social distancing, masking, people were willing to do just about anything. To get I get so a semblance of, of normal life. It's so right? funny. You you know, you must have been like 
you know, if there was ever a guy built for this, uh, this time, it's a, it's a medical ethicist and a psychiatrist, right? Like you had to be going at the same time, like, <laughs> yeah. okay, emo- mentally, I want, I'm fascinated by what people are doing, right? How did they get yep. so many people yep. to go along with this insanity? Yep. And then uh, ethical side, medical ethics, like what in the heaven is my profession doing exactly. here, right? Like, exactly. so you must have been yeah. going, and then I'm imagining like you probably felt a little bit like I cannot be the only one that is like putting these together here and has concerns yet to your, I think you know, partially to your point, it really did reveal, oh my goodness, we are, we, this thing, because if it would have, there had to be something brewing for, you know, decades previous in order for them to even mm-hmm. kind That's of right. pull that off. Right. That's right. Um, so yeah, That's sorry right. to interrupt, but yeah, go ahead. No, not at all. So yeah, that's the vaccine passports are one example of that second element of digital technologies of surveillance and control, but they're the control of the flow of information through what we now know is government sponsored censorship. So I'm, I'm one of the plaintiffs in the Missouri v. Biden case, which is alleging that the several senior uh, officials in many different, at least 17 different federal agencies have been colluding with social media companies and leaning on them, pressuring them. Uh, to censor um, information that challenges their code policies. And now this is a clear First Amendment free speech violation, but it's been going on uh, at a massive scale for uh, most of the last three years. And there's other examples in the, in the book that you know, the CDC extracting without Americans' knowledge or consent, without even notifying the public, extracting bulk data from our cell phones uh, to track and trace and, and also to monitor our compliance with lockdowns that, you know, are people gathering in churches and schools. I mean, can you talk about that? Because when I read that, I got, again, it happened about 30 times in this book, but I got uh, cold chills down my spine because, you know, here, you know, I mean, yeah, just very real here, guys, like you're listening to this there. They literally, it's, you know, out there, that's one of the things I was fascinated about the book. I'm like, man, Doc, you did such a great job at gathering this information. I mean, let's just say in your area, California would have been a good one where maybe they said, hey, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to go to churches. Churches are supposed to be closed. And a pastor yep. was decided to, you know, go ahead and, and, and not, you know, follow that uh, draconian illegal, mm-hmm. you know, uh, suggestion or, or law or whatever words we were using at the time. They were, they were, and you, let's say you brought your phone with you they know that and they know that on July 26th you were in a house of worship like that's crazy and that that's happened right. no, that's, yeah that's exactly what happened it happened in the United States CDC was doing it. it happened in Canada even though Justin Trudeau promised that the government was not going to do that they did it anyway without notifying uh, or getting consent from Canadians and the data was supposedly anonymized, but some researchers at, at Princeton, I believe it was, basically showed that very easily with only four of those data points, you could identify the individual mm-hmm. that was, you know, associated with that, with the number or what have you. So yeah, they knew not only how many people were gathering uh, at a church or a school or what have you, but it, they, you could easily find out exactly who those people were so this is a level of intrusive surveillance um, that again has been uh, government sponsored with the cooperation of um, private corporations, sort of melding of state and corporate power uh, that we've seen unfold over the last three years. We know that the CDC is doing warrantless backdoor searches mm-hmm. 
uh, of Americans, not of Americans who are suspected of, yeah. um, you know, terrorism related activities, but of ordinary Americans, uh, you know, who may have been exposed to someone who may have tested positive for COVID this, this sort of thing. So I describe, um, I described that in the book and examples of that from the U.S. and abroad. Now, is it fair, Doc, to ask, though, because if I'm listening, I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, I know they did it. It's crazy. It's It seems criminal to me. But what I want a lot of our listeners to know is kind of the steps that happen, because there's a really big thing that happens when an emergency is declared, right? Exactly. And, and for our listeners here, exactly. a lot of that is why, because some of you are just scratching out, how in the world did a vaccine ever even get, you know, or a, mm-hmm. I, mean, I hesitate to call it a vaccine, but the yeah, gene therapy you yeah. know, jab. How did that even happen? And so you think that can't be legal. And in many ways, in, in a perfect world, it's not. But there's things that had happened. Again, you use this 20 years, you know, with the Patriot Act or the, you know, after 9-11 that set the stage for them to do what we would call yeah. unthinkable and unimaginable. Yeah. But it, it has been done in many ways, air quotes, legally, although, you know, it needs to be dealt with here. Because th- can you talk about just that caveat or that that reality a little bit? Yeah, so very good point. Basically, all of the authoritarian policies that we've mentioned, from lockdowns to school closures to mask mandates, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports, et cetera, et cetera, all of these were made possible, the emergency use authorization of these vaccines, under the federal declared state of emergency, which is a legal issue that we haven't paid a lot of attention to, but basically undergirding all the stuff that happened to us over the last three years was a declared state of emergency in which ordinary constitutional checks and balances and ordinary constitutional delegation of powers were suspended. So still are, right? We still are. Still are. You know, even though Biden Biden said it's over. (laughs) Yeah. Biden renewed the state of emergency at the federal level the day after the midterm elections. Um, That's, that's done by the secretary of health and human services, Javier, Becerra, former attorney general of California, a man with no public health training, uh, no medical experience, uh, endorsed by the president. And this happened every 90 days for the better part of the last three years to almost no media attention. Well, under the federal state of emergency, the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he would not otherwise have. He can delegate those powers to unelected uh, public health bureaucrats and others in his administration that are unelected appointed positions. And you're exactly right. He, he said coming up to the midterms that the pandemic was over. He made that claim on 60 minutes, which was true. It's been over for some time, but his advisors immediately panicked and said, no, 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 you can't say that. You know, it was advantageous to say that going into the midterms politically for him. Uh, It was true. So why not say it? Well, the reason is if the pandemic is over and we acknowledge that, then uh, the state of emergency has to end. And we don't want to give up those additional powers. Same thing happened at the state level under in the state of California. We're still operating under a declared state of emergency at the state level in which the governor gains additional powers that he can delegate to unelected bureaucrats. Doc, is it true if uh, that if that dropped like today, if I snap my fingers and I'm trying to remember the exact uh, details of this, but most of the covid jabs then would also immediately not be able to be used because the I think most right. of them are under almost every one of them minus maybe the elderly or something is only available right is under am I right on that yeah that's right the only one that would be available and it would only be available uh, if I'm not mistaken for the adult population yeah. it's not necessarily approved for all age groups would be the Pfizer community 
vaccine, which is not currently being used Crazy. in the United States, because if they used the one that was actually approved, they would have to include a package insert that has you know, a list of side effects and contraindications and all that stuff that you would ordinarily expect. Look at the package in- insert for any of the vaccines on the market in the United States, and you unfold this huge piece of paper uh, with the words, this page is intentionally left blank, and then a bunch of white space. So they're... You know, there is no ordinary disclosure Doc, like you would have with any other approved medication. I have to ask you this and pause you here because this is where just like physician ethicist, you know, ethics, ethics, ethicist. Am I saying that right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, just comes to mind because I was watching that um, uh, Senator Ron Johnson had recently done a, a earlier, I think it was last week. He had another kind of roundtable and he had a pediatrician yeah. on there. And, and um, as a matter of fact, she's been a guest on this show, but she, she literally, I just want people to understand because I think sometimes people hear this and they think, oh, this is a hyperbole or we're exactly exaggerating, right? Like she literally takes the insert out of the the box, unfolds it. It's exactly what you said. And here, so not only should that frighten you, um, but also, and she makes this point, I believe, and I'd love to hear you from as a, as a practicing physician that does, you know, could do that impossible then to give informed consent. That's right. Informed consent requires the informed part. It requires (laughs) a full disclosure of the known risks, benefits, and alternatives and unknown potential risks. You know, the fact that this, we don't have long-term safety data on the vaccine. That needs to be disclosed to patients. What we know, what we don't know, you know, what they're signing on for. And that literally cannot be done when information about vaccine adverse events is deliberately suppressed, uh, when it's left out of the conversations, when people who raise those issues on social media are kicked off platforms for even mentioning uh, potential uh, vaccine injuries or adverse effects of the vaccine. So this is really unconscionable. I describe in chapter two, our efforts to uh, improve transparency at the FDA. I was part of uh, coordinated a group of doctors and scientists that filed the uh, freedom of information act request to get the, the clinical trials data for the Pfizer vaccine, which on the day that it was authorized, the federal government was required to release that data. They didn't do that. And so we were simply asking the FDA to do what it was required to do under federal law um, and give us the clinical trials data so we could make it publicly available. FDA said, we'll give you 500 pages a month, which if you did the math would have taken 75 years to release data that they reviewed in only 108 days. Um, Pfizer then intervened and asked to be able to redact the data, which was not surprising, you know, before it was released. But what was kind of shocking was that the Department of Justice lawyers representing the FDA agreed with Pfizer and requested to the court that the company be allowed to redact the data before it was released to the public. So fortunately, we had a good judge who said no to both of those requests. You have to you have eight months to release it and Pfizer's not going to be involved in, uh, you know, crossing out the information that they don't want people to know about. Um, there was, there's something that, that if you don't mind giving just a little bit on, because I, again, I think what happens at these is such an emotional, every, what everybody's gone through the, the last uh, few years here. Yeah. When you make, when we make that discussion about, or we, 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 and I just, please listeners, I just want, cause it's so important. There's some foundational things we have to deal with here. So when, a uh, when the a vaccine jab gets, you know, issued under an emergency use, uh, for all intents and purposes, we're part of an experiment. Okay, Mm -hmm. and when we are part of an experiment and we don't have fully informed consent, this does invoke things that are 
are so emotional, such as the Nuremberg Code. And I know, Doc, you would not throw that term around lightly. I wouldn't, right? This is not something that we're just saying because we don't like it or, you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? We don't like lockdowns or something like that's not the context of this conversation. It's at that scale. Do you mind just, and then we'll move on to the rest of the book there, Doc, but in the, why can you make that association um, around mm-hmm. something so, you know, crimes of, hum, you know, against humanity, Nuremberg Code mm-hmm. level situation here? Yeah. So, I mean, anytime you draw a historical analogy to the Third Reich, people tend to sort of freak out. So, you know, necessary caveat, I am comparing neither the current nor the previous administration right, right, to right, Hitler's right. Nazi regime. But as I mentioned in the prologue, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And there are important historical analogies to uh, what happened at Nuremberg that we need to be paying attention to. So the Nuremberg Code was developed after the Nuremberg Trials, where not only were Nazi war crimes prosecuted um, and members of, of, of the SS and the military in Germany prosecuted for crimes against humanity, but a dozen physicians were also prosecuted for crimes against humanity for experiments done on death camp prisoners without their consent. And uh, half of those were given uh, the the death penalty sentence, actually, and then several of them were actually hanged after the Nuremberg trial. So the Nuremberg Code was... Uh, an attempt on the part of the international community to make sure that those kinds of atrocities in science and medicine didn't occur again. And I encourage our listeners to go and read the Nuremberg Code. It's very short. It's only about a page, page and a half. And the very first principle is the one that we've already talked about, the principle of free and informed consent, that uh, individuals have the right to decide whether they want to be a part of an experiment. And by our own federal government's definition, Anything authorized for emergency use is still under investigation, meaning it's still experimental by our own definition of that word in the United States. Um, Anyone, you know, any adult of sound mind has the right to consent or decline participation in a medical experiment, and they have the right to do so on behalf of their children who are not old enough to give consent. So this is precisely the first principle in the Nuremberg Code is precisely the principle that we abandoned during the COVID pandemic, again, under the, under the auspices of, well, it's an emergency, so we can throw the rules overboard. Well, no, it's precisely during wartime, it's precisely during a crisis that we are most tempted to abandon our ethical principles. And it's precisely during those times that if we abandon our ethical principles, as Germany did during the Second World War, that the worst kinds of abuses of human rights can uh, can happen. So these things are a bulwark against that, but they only function if we if we maintain those principles when it is difficult. Right? It's yeah. easy to maintain them during ordinary times when we're not tempted to abandon them. Yeah, right. But they don't exist for ordinary times. They exist precisely for extraordinary times. Yes, I mean, it's, I'm so yeah. Thank you for just walking us through this because if we can't get this right, then then some of the things down, you know, kind of down the pipeline. And your book does a good job of this. It's like kind of like I feel like it's like a journey through understanding right the biomedical security state and implications of that that you might not have thought of. And some of that requires us to know a little bit of history, and then some of That's it right. requires us to connect a couple dots right that we either just hadn't thought about or we had gotten so comfortable with 
the times that we just, you know, we trusted the FDA, we trusted the CDC, we trusted our federal government to some degree. And this kind yeah. of pulled away the curtain for a lot of people that went, whoa, whoa. And for still a lot of people, unfortunately, I think the curtain is still pulled, is still, is still actually covered. So what, so yeah, continue to walk us through now kind of into the book and, and why we should be concerned is what other implications there are with this biomedical security state when, where, what's the state of affairs and, and then just, yeah, dive in. Yeah. So what we saw with uh, lockdowns, for example, yeah. I argue, is, was not just a novel, previously untested authoritarian measure to try to manage uh, a respiratory virus. What we saw was a new paradigm of governance that was rolled out that involved previously un, you know, unprecedented control over the movements uh, of, of populations, over the free expression, free speech, free exercise of religion, rights of, of entire populations. And that new mode of government governance really entails, this, this paradigm entails jumping from one declared crisis to the next. And so we've seen efforts um, with monkeypox, with now RSV and so mm -hmm. forth, to kind of maintain this state of emergency through whatever the next wave or the next declared uh, public health crisis might be. And we've also seen efforts to reframe other issues as public health issues. Um, climate change is a good example of that. And, and again, bracket for a moment your, your views on climate change. But sure. over the last three to four years, even starting prior to the pandemic, climate change, if you read the headlines on climate change, climate change has been reframed from an ecological or environmental issue to a public health issue. It's always framed now in terms of public health harms to various populations. And there are voices now of people in academia, people in, in positions of power politically that are advocating for things like lockdowns to deal with the climate crisis, lockdowns to deal with the energy crisis. Doc, it's, it's racism. It's true. You know, redefined as a public health issue yeah. during the Did, pandemic. I mean, I remember some of this early and it's hard not once you, once you're skeptical, it's like hard to almost not be, you know what I mean? And I remember, yeah. you know, when the lockdown happened in, you know, in America and, and in China and of course all over, but I remember seeing these headlines and it was weird to me. And it was like, Hey, you know, the, the, the skies cleared up a little bit and Hey, you know, was this like, Hey, there's this silver lining. And I was like, something doesn't feel right. I'm not even, I'm not even arguing if that happened or not. I simply mean mm -hmm. the fact that that is going to be weaponized against mm -hmm. us to justify these right. draconian illegal. I mean, and then I, you ask yourself, even if you're listening, regardless of your views on climate change, is that the world that you want to live in? And honestly, to me, exactly. doc, the part that concerns me is it really turns us humans and you do such a masterful job of, of, of talking about this in the book. It really almost turns doc. It's like this. It's like, it turns humans into like, the, the the like we're the we're the parasite of the of of the universe mm -hmm. right like like right. our only solution is to get rid of people almost i mean i'm yeah. exaggerating here a little bit but not really we're the problem and now listen you might listen to this and you go well hey we do a lot of things we mess up this and i'm just telling you be careful of that nihilistic um mm -hmm. you know uh uh, again, I'm by, I am by no means, I am a person of faith. I believe in stewarding the, our environment. I believe in stewarding our bodies. Like that's a lot of Likewise. actually my premise yeah. of this. Okay. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, 
but, but we have to really be careful, but you probably just haven't thought about it that way. You think, well, hey, what's wrong with that? Let's clear it up a little bit. Or I even remember, Doc, in the lockdown early on, I had some friends and I mean, I've really struggled with this thing the whole time, but I remember some people being like, oh, it's been really great. I've been home with my family more. Listen, I'm a family guy. I know you're a family guy, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not going to have my family time be dictated by the federal government on if I can leave my house or not. And by the way, right. understand, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of people that it wasn't good family time for. There's a lot of people that it destroyed their lives. It led to abuse. Right. It led to addiction. So be very careful how you say that because what was yeah. your little silver lining vacation was somebody else's living hell, right? And so just, just so precisely. Yeah. Yeah, forgive me yeah. for getting a little well put. you know upset there, but it's <laughs> we have to think about these things or we will keep going down this little you know, lockstep path of, Hey, do it for the mm -hmm. greater good. And like you talk about in your book, kind of societal expectations, but, but the, the end game of this is, is literally, and I'm you know, getting a little bit, you know, it's the end of what any of you would probably on this line call life as you would mm -hmm. desire it. So take it from there. Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, well put, well said, I, I talk in, uh, I believe it's in the first chapter about this concept of the of the mega machine, the machine made of human parts, where we all become sort of cogs in in, in this system uh, that becomes dehumanizing. That was purportedly done for the sake of our health, but ends up not only harming our health, but making our lives more and more impoverished at at the psychological, social, and spiritual levels. And there, the the biomedical model of uh, sort of governing people is not going away simply because some of these policies have been temporarily rolled back. The next steps in the process, which I, I described a couple of those in chapter three, will involve things like the rollout of biometric identification, um, digital IDs tied to biometric data, like your iris scan, your face ID, your fingerprint, eventually moment-to-moment -moment biometric data from wearables or implantable devices looking at your, your vital signs and your moment-to-moment -moment emotional responses to what you're watching on TV or you know, things that are uh, Doc, happening around you. This, they, is, uh, this is not science fiction. This they is, rolled that out, this is right? being rolled out. Did I just see, I think it, I saw airports been, are bringing eye, eye, mm -hmm. eye ID, you know, or you know, facial identification yeah. out. And yeah, that's right. The, 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 the clear thing that you see at the airports to skip to the head of the security line. Uh, India has already rolled out biometric IDs for its populations, and we've seen examples of of kind of gross human rights abuses and exclusions of people that are not engaged with that system that are basically locked out of locked out of society. So this I, this this system that will allow for increasing govern governing bodies and even private entities, corporations that are benefiting to monitor your your moment-to-moment -moment movements, your behavior. Um, with the release of central bank digital currencies, you know, the feds are considering and doing a sort of trial balloon of the digital dollar. These currencies will also, when they're tied to your digital ID, will also allow for government monitoring of basically each and every financial transaction that you engage in and give, give them the power to lock you out of financial markets if you don't if you don't behave, right? If you don't follow the latest guidance or dictates on um, 
public health. And if you example, think that's crazy, Canada did this with truckers, right? That's right. A, a little bit ago. And not only to the truckers themselves, but to people that donated to that cause, you know, you use that example, right? You sitting at your home and maybe you gave 50 bucks to a cause you believe in the next day you go to your ATM to pull out some cash for lunch and you've been shut off. Mm-hmm. And that happened in Canada. Like that's not that's a, exactly right. a hyperbole. And I think that's what, you know, I know we're talking about some heavy stuff here, but you know, if you don't think about these, they're, they're banking on us not thinking about this. And it's, and that's also right. as a listener, it's always done under the, you guys, the horrible Nazi Germany, you know, regime, you know, concentration camps were done under the auspices of helping and health care. I mean, they were led mm-hmm. by, you know, doctors and it was not, you know, we, history paints it sometimes as this rogue maniac that somehow managed to do this. Understand people knowingly went along with this. Matter of fact, even at the trials, which you referenced, like they were arguing, upping up into the trials, like, hey, I was just doing my job. So it's mm-hmm. always going to be rolled out like this is good for you. We're going to help you. We're going to keep you safe. We're going to make your life easier. Hey, isn't it going to be great? So, so I'm telling you this as a warning you could be fooled. You could say, I don't know what's wrong with that. What's, Hey, what's wrong with it? Checking my biometric data. That way, if I'm having a heart attack, they can by golly, send an ambulance. See, it all sounds well and good until they decide that a guy like you or a guy like me that does a podcast like this is uh, no longer mentally well. And so somebody shows up at my door, like you mentioned earlier, military, you know, police state and says, um, Hey, Dr. Ben, we're not really into your discussion. Matter of fact, we don't think you're well. And uh, we also notice you haven't seemed to gone and gotten your jab lately. And uh, we don't mm-hmm. like that either. And so we're just going to go ahead and, and take you over here. Like, you think that sounds crazy? I would tell you, not only is it not, it's actually already happened. And so um, I, I don't mean to scare you, but at the same time, we need to, you should be highly concerned, even where we're at. Yeah, and this does. This also doesn't have to be done by men and jack, but it should be done by an algorithm, right? Uh, so you get... You get a you get a central bank digital currency as a tax refund. You get a you get a thousand digital dollars in your digital wallet. Well, that quote unquote money, which is not actually money, uh, it's it's a sort of temporary voucher. It can be programmed to um, function in a certain way. So they could say, for example, you have to spend this in the next nine months, or it's going to sort of disappear. Right. They can say you you have to spend it on these favorite industries, you know, green energy or whatever. Um, or, you know, if you want to give it away, you can, you can only give it to these nonprofits. You can't give it to these other disfavored nonprofits. You know, you can't send uh, the Ben Roll podcast, uh, you know, some money to help support its work <laughs> and, and the algorithm, uh, you know, so they can, they can squeeze, uh, any institution or any individual they want financially to control their financial behavior. Um, they can uh, they can squeeze entities financially so that they cannot receive support, as was done with the truckers convoy uh, by Justin Trudeau. And uh, and they can also the algorithm can also just make make it impossible for people to find you on a search, um, you know, deplatform you from the typical podcast uh, platforms where you would be able to sort of, you know, get things out there and reach your audience. Um, so d- these you know, the, the new sort of soft totalitarianism does not necessarily mm-hmm. need to involve uh, concentration camps and men in jackboots and secret police, although it could. Uh, but more likely, it'll be a sort of velvet glove approach mm-hmm. where, 
you know, you're, you're in a kind of digital gulag and excluded wow. from markets, excluded from the means of, of social communication uh, and, and connection. And that, that can be just as powerful. That can be just as alienating and oppressive as, you know, actual physical measures to slap handcuffs on you and, and lock you up. So, okay, I feel, okay, so because we love our listeners, whew, right? So we, before we all need to come see you as a patient, right? Um, uh, chapter four, you give us, yeah. you get, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he says, yes. Uh, I, I know, I'm sure you needed to write chapter four just for yourself, right? You're like, I need to. Yeah, I did. It was, it was a bit of, of, of <laughs> therapy. therapy. I mean, what one recent interviewer called my book nonfiction Orwell, and I, I told him, like, I didn't set out to write <laughs> you know, a nonfiction 1984 uh, or Brave New World, I, I set out just to explain what's going on. And, you know, the fact that it happens to read a bit pessimistically, um, you know, I just, was not intended. It's just an attempt to tell the truth. But I don't want to leave readers with a sense of hopelessness because I don't think things are hopeless. First of all, I think, so chapter four, the last chapter of the book, is, is really about what can be done, right? Because many people feel powerless, you know, I, I don't have a microphone like, you know, this podcast. Well, I'm not as smart as Dr. Air. You know I mean? Honestly. I'm not a doctor. I'm yeah. not an expert in this or that. So what, what can I really do? I have no influence over public policy, et cetera. Well, I think there's a lot that ordinary people can do. And, and I think this regime will collapse when a sufficient number of ordinary people stand up to resist it. Um, you know, in the context of the medical freedom movement, in the context of other grassroots movements that are, that are opting out of this, regime. Um, and so I offer some advice. I offer some policy proposals in the last chapter, particularly to reform our public health agencies uh, and deal with that whole mess. But I also offer advice to ordinary people. Uh, the first thing we need to do is overcome our fear. And I have some things to say about that in the last chapter, because fear is going to paralyze us. Um, it's going to make us sort of lose our wits and lose our heads. Uh, it certainly makes us more compliant to the to the will of other people that have particular economic or, you know, financial or political interests in getting us to go along with, uh, with this regime. Doc, can I ask you something uh, real quick on fear? Just mm -hmm, see if yeah. you agree with this. Here's what I would challenge a listener to. So, um, the thing that's just, just a little history on this. So when it, when it started as two weeks to flatten the curve or it started as, you know, masking here when you're there or something like this, and then it started with uh, temporary and then it was not going to be mandated and th those things so that all those mm -hmm. goalposts have changed. Here's my concern for you. It's really important that you, that you, it's the stakes are only going to get higher. All right. So it's the, right. the urgency would be the sooner that we start up because there's that old um, paraphrasing that that quote, right? When they came for the Jews, I wasn't a Jew when they came for the right. Exactly. And eventually they came for me and there was nobody there. Eventually, if as this, you know, continues to tighten, it will they will be able to take, you know, when they can this shut your life down, you are going the, the reality at that point would be different. So I'm just encouraging you now is the time. OK, we're in booster number, whatever we're in, five four, six, I don't know. Mm -hmm. They're talking annual. Like it's, this isn't over. Okay. And so the, the, we need to uh, now legally, and uh, you know, we're not inciting anything here. I'm saying, you know, legally you push back um, against mm -hmm. unjust, unconstitutional laws. You, you support candidates that are going to do that. You support businesses. You, you know, you buy the books of our friend here. You, you do those things. You <laughs> join the Substack because 
if we don't do it now, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to be a rebel rouser, if it's just only going to get harder. Is that fair to say? That's, that's precisely to the point. That's exactly, that's exactly it. And so I think everyone needs to decide where is my line? What is, um, and if you don't have a line, you should ask yourself some (laughs) serious questions like how far, you know, what, what freedoms, what rights would I not be willing to, to give up or give in, you know, where, where's the point where I will say this far, but no further, I'm not going to take an additional step. I'm not going to take an additional job. I'm not going to, um, you know, wear this, this face covering that, uh, we now know does not, does not work. So that's important for everyone. It's, I think it's uh, another thing that we've internalized is, uh, the process of self censorship. So, uh, you know, in a totalitarian system that's fully totalitarian, you don't need um, you don't need certain mass surveillance anymore. You don't need uh, secret police because the 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 norms of that society have been so internalized by people that it doesn't even occur to them to ask questions. It doesn't even Mm. occur to them to uh to resist it doesn't occur to them to trust their their own experience or their own judgment um and that's that's the worst form of slavery so i encourage people when you notice that you're self-censoring um you know ask yourself why and maybe maybe consider taking a bit of a risk and you know stepping out and saying something no i i I disagree with that i don't think that makes sense Um, i don't think that's a good idea uh, you can have a lot of influence on your on your close circle of family and friends, on your colleagues at work, uh, by being the first person to step out. It often empowers other people to step out and say, "You know, I I agree, I agree with uh, with so and so. I've been thinking that too." And you know, sort of thank you for for saying it. So, um, you know, it's in social settings we don't say every thought that comes into our mind all the time. There is such a thing as discretion, but I think things have swung so far in the direction of, you know, people being discouraged from trusting their own experience, trusting their own judgment, uh, and just deferring to experts that this self-censorship, which is so characteristic of totalitarian societies, has become endemic in our own society. And what I tell people is, look, you may not be an expert in, in medicine or public health or virology or epidemiology. That's okay. You know, you learn something from people with expertise in those areas. Certainly listen, listen to their opinions and their advice. But um, you are in possession of rationality and common sense. You have the ability to spot a logical contradiction. You have the ability to recognize when, uh, you know, what these so-called experts said last month completely contradicts what they're saying today. So don't outsource your rationality and logic and your, your judgment to so-called experts, um, you know, reclaim your ability to be, uh, to, to, to think for yourself, uh, and to, and to make your own judgments. I think when people start doing that, it weakens the ability of this kind of regime to advance its aims. Doc, I don't know if you, if you have it in front of you, if you do, I would, I would give you the, the, if you have a book in front of you, your quote on page 225. Um, if not, I can read it. I just don't. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, because I I think that as we kind of, you know, uh, we could talk all day, but as we kind of, uh, wind down here a little bit and I want to give you last, last word here. Um, you have a quote in the book that I just think, says it so well. Um, and to me, this is encouragement. You know, we're, we're kind of winding down uh, 2022. 
Um, we're looking at, you know, the next year and usually that fills us with the time, hopefully of optimism and, you know, new day, new page next year is going to be better. Um, because you're, you know, even from a, a psychiatry realm or a mental health realm, you know, we, we can, we can earn, we can come into a state of learned helplessness, right? Where we just give up. Yeah. That's when we're yeah. done, right? That's when it's over. And so you have this quote that you, um, that you have. So I'm just going to read it. And again, reading your quote in front of you is a little weird, but I'm going to read it for you. So it says, history is not set in stone. The future is not predetermined by the past. History is made by the decisions of individuals. There are social, there are economic, there are political. There are all kinds of other forces at work that no doubt shape human history and shape our collective actions. But ultimately, human beings are free and rational individuals who can discern the good, who can freely choose the good, or who can choose to, ch to pursue other paths. So my advice is to remember that the future is not set in stone. The future really depends on what we do now. And I think all of us want to wake up in 10, 20, 30 years, be able to tell our next generation that we stood up, did everything in our power, regardless of the outcome, to make sure that we were handing the world to them, a, on a world to them that was humane, that was livable, that was just, and that was free. I wish I would have wrote that. That's why I'm telling you, man. I'm like, this guy has got the gift. He's got an anointing <laughs> in his writing. But I just thought that was so beautiful. Doc, we Gosh, are did I say that? That's, that's pretty good. That's, I like that. I think you said that in there. You're like, I don't even know where this came from. It was pretty good. Uh, but what, what's, you. what's final you. thoughts for us? How do we follow you? I, I stay up to, to sure. speed with you. We thank you for your work. I know I see you come across different events and speaking. I know you're you know, doing all that you can, and we appreciate you for that, and our listeners appreciate it. But how do we support you? How do we stay up to speed with you? And then just any final thoughts? Yeah. So thank you for that, Ben. Uh, enjoy the conversation. Folks can follow me on Twitter. At a Cariotti is my Twitter handle. I have a Substack newsletter that you can subscribe to, uh, aaroncariotti.substack.com, or you can just do a search for uh, Substack Human Flourishing is the name of the newsletter. Um, and, of course, I encourage folks to, to get the book. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, any other place that you buy books online or the bookstore. It's available on audiobook. It's available on e-reader, like the Kindle, if that's your preferred uh, medium. And, uh, you know, I, I think my, my parting words to the audience is just to echo what you just said, which is what I said <laughs> in the, <laughs> the close of the book, um, that actually our, our decisions do matter. And uh, history does not move in a deterministic direction. History does not have sides. History is created um, by all of us acting, acting together in, you know, beginning in, in small ways. So uh, to, to re-empower people with a sense that our decisions do matter and what we do um, in our small circle of influence, uh, individually, in our family, among our, you know, our circle of friends and acquaintances, uh, will make a difference. And so, uh, it's, it's important for us to remember that and to, you know, and to rely on the working of God's providence in history, uh, where all of us, I think, have an essential role to play in that process. Amen, my friend. Well, I, I wish you, uh, you know, I was talking with my son the other night and, and he, I said, are you excited about the new year? And he kind of said, ah, <laughs> not really. I said, well, what, yeah. what's up? And he goes, 
and he remembered hearing somebody say back in the early or in the COVID stuff, and it said it's it's not 2022, it's 2020 for the second time, right? And that kind of freaked him out, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah do we yeah. have to wait till 2030 for this to be over with? And yeah. and and you know, and so as you're getting ready to you know this next year, and with with Doc here, what this is a great book. I know I'm pushing the book, but I'm telling you, it will. Yes, there's heavy stuff, stuff we need to be aware of as a concerned citizen, but there is hope. It's just what what Doc was saying with us today. We thank you for being one of those voices in the wilderness, Doc. I hope that uh, we get a chance to have an, a conversation in the future that as the scales you know begin to tip and, and more people are waking up and standing up for truth and for freedom and for medical freedom. But thank you for being a voice of courage for so many. Thanks, Ben. Right. Appreciate that very much. God bless. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic. 